stewardship can be simply just being a caretaker or stewardship can be much more active. And we're taking a very active role in, in managing the resources that we happen to own for the good of the future. That includes, uh, you know, employing young talent like Tyler and Adam and, and bringing other people into the mix to, to, to learn from them and exchange knowledge. We've had field days where, where we've shared what we're doing. So I see those as all elements of stewardship, not just holding tight to a place, but making it possible for others to uh, learn and benefit. And, and, and in the exchange, I hope we learn and benefit from, from the knowledge. And, and I feel like some of the places that that's happened has been around climate and uh, new practices in the forest and the forest and the, the prescribed fire is all about stewardship that we are uh, hopefully our landscape will not be a contributor to the bigger problems when fire does come through by taking care of what we have. Welcome to the Forest Overstory with WCU Extension Forestry. The Forest Overstory is a podcast that provides insight and education into the field of forest management, helping landowners to become better stewards of their forest. The Forest Overstory is brought to you by the Society of American Foresters and the Inland Empire Chapter. All right. Thank you very much for coming out today, listeners. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Forest Overstory podcast. Today, we are joined by... Uh, Martha Wyckoff, who is a landowner in Cleelum, Washington. We are also joined by two individuals who are working for her. I will let them introduce themselves a little bit further, but their names are Tyler Larson and Adam Hess. Thank you for joining the episode today. Um, Martha, why don't you go ahead and just do a quick introduction of yourself, and then we'll have Tyler and Adam introduce themselves. Okay, great. Thanks, Sean. Um, my name is Martha Wyckoff, and uh, my husband and I farm in the Cleelum area. We're east of downtown Cleelum by about eight miles, and we have both uh, dry, dry land farming and some irrigated ground, which includes about 400 acres of forest. And for the subject today, we really are focused on the forest health work that we're doing on our forest ground. We are a small family farm business. Uh, we raised Timothy Hay for the um, export market. And one of our objectives in stewarding this land has been to uh, prepare for fire and be fire resilient and uh, address climate as it is a existential situation for all of us to be facing and to have a healthy habitat and ecosystem at, at all levels from soil to treetop in our forest. So we have, um, over the last year, hired two young scientists from Central Washington, and uh, they are carrying on the bulk of the work. However, over the past 35 years, we've been preparing for the work that they've been doing just by um, doing firewise and forest health management uh, at a private level. We're both my husband and I are very involved in land conservation and have been for over 30 years with the Trust for Public Land. So we start with the conservation ethic and we really came to farming to keep farming as part of the fabric of uh, a, a land conservation and community-based 
health and resiliency to community. That's awesome. Tyler and Adam, why, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves as well? Go for it. Um, so I'm Tyler Larson. I'm from Ellensburg and uh, I'm a graduate of CWU uh, in Ellensburg. Adam and I both graduated in their biology program and um, gotten, met Martha through a, an event that we were doing where we were reseeding uh, Umtanum Canyon after the Evans Canyon fire. And so she wanted two college graduate scientists to come up and do a forest inventory. And it's, we've just kind of figured it out as we went along and uh, it's just still going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm Adam Hess, uh, like Tyler said, biologist from Central Washington University. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in Snohomish, moved here about five years ago to go to Central. Um, I'm mostly interested in amphibians and reptiles, but now I'm just getting really into forestry. <laughs> uh, it's been like a great project and I've learned a lot from it. So, yeah. Did either of you have any forestry background prior to working with Martha? Um, no, I didn't really know. Yeah. Like I, I know, uh, I have a couple family members who have small forests, so I'd help plant trees and put on browse protectors and, um, spray blood on the trees to keep deer and elk from browsing on them, which was an interesting <laughs> one. Uh, but other than that, no, I didn't really know, uh, anywhere near as much as I know now, that's for sure. And I would um, add that they both are, um, evidence of really good biology and science, uh, education at Central. I think that's that that mm -hmm. is the grounding mm -hmm. that they bring. And then we have a consultant, uh, Phil Hess, who's not related to Adam, but with the same last name, who's been at the high level leading the um, the forest side of it, the forest science practices. So but these two are are, are formulating the plan and um, standing up. We've had some field days with climate scientists and uh, public agency folks to talk about what we're doing. And um, the, they're creating a plan that's that's really their own, that's based on the science in the forest. And, and it's been very positive so far. The reception's been good. Uh, Martha, before we you know dig into what you guys are doing and are going to do, I really want to hear a little more about about the history of the farm, because you said 35 years. Um, so there's a lot of history there. And I'm wondering, you know, is this uh, an intergenerational thing or did you start it? Uh, did you buy the land yourself? You know, can we get a little more background on, on what happened over those sure. uh, 35 um, years? Yeah, about, well, about 30, almost 35 years ago, um, my former husband and I decided with three little boys that we would find a, a patch of getaway property um, out of Seattle. And we were raising our kids in Seattle and came over to Swak Prairie, which is part of our landscape here. It's an original prairie and it's, it's a really exceptional environment. And uh, one thing led to another and I became involved with trying to do land conservation around keeping agriculture lands in agriculture. And a number of the things I attempted didn't work, um, but eventually uh, I was in a situation in a position where I was able to purchase some additional farm ground, which put us into being actual hands-on wheat farmers. <laughs> so we actually did all the wheat farming for a number of years, up until 2000. Our last crop of, of uh, 
winter wheat went in in, in 2000. And after that, we started planting out to hay because uh, my kids were growing up and they'd been kind of the workforce in the summer times and their lives were taking them in lots of different directions. Although this is ground zero for their one of their favorite places on the planet. So it still brings everybody back. So from a from a little 40 acres with 20 acres of trees and 20 acres of, of um, forest, we've expanded significantly. And in 2014, we ended up buying some agricultural land with water rights, which um, became quite an, it has been an all-consuming uh, project for us. And we're now full-time here operating um, both the dry land and the, the irrigated ground. But it gives us the opportunity to pay some serious attention to the forest land as well, uh, which is has captured both my husband and my uh, commitment because we see it as such a key to uh, you know both the the ecosystem health, the fire resiliency concerns, and also the water, which ultimately is so important for the fish, which we pay attention to as part of our landscape planning. But it's been a great. It's, it, one of the one of the things that's been truly a privilege is to be a part of this community at the larger scale and and active in engaged in in things like growth management planning, which I was on committees for growth management. And I've been serving since the origin of the Tianaway Community Forest on that advisory board, which is a terrific group of people. So the Tianaway Community Forest has, has played a role in that it's, it's a great uh, place for all parts of the community to come together to be thinking about a large landscape, which is 50,000 acres just up the road from us. Wow. Now, for anybody who's listening, because we have audience members all across the United States and internationally, can you describe a little bit about kind of the forest type around Cleelm and around your forest? So what is it you're managing? And can you kind of set that stage ecologically for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, uh, out here, it's pretty much like a Ponderosa dry forest. You know, there's there's some Douglas fir mixed in, um, but it's mostly a dry forest. Uh, we're in the the shadow, the rain shadow of the Cascades. Um, and then there's a lot of grasslands and prairie around as well as sagebrush when you get, when you get further east and it gets a lot drier. And what's been the, the land use history for that property, I guess, maybe prior to um, your ownership and management of it? It's in, since Western uh, European migration to this area, which was in the 1880s to a large extent, it's always been in agriculture and and just high grading forest for our particular properties. Up the road where the Tianaway Community Forest is, that was commercial forest ground. And then there's a lot of public agency land. The Department of Natural Resources is a boundary member and the U.S. Forest Service is nearby. So we have we have quite a combination. But this is mining and forestry for a long history from the 18, mid-1800s. Would you say that you can see the legacy of that still on your land today, especially in terms of forest health? Definitely. Um, I think these guys should speak to that because they've been doing a, a great deal of the study of what we're learning. Yeah, we've, um, we've found that on one particular piece of land that we've been working on, um, that the forest there is actually relatively new. Um, when we were going through aging trees, we we're not finding any trees older than 120 years old. 
So uh, that's led us to believe that that forest is a new forest uh, that is now there due to fire exclusion. Yeah, it was 120 years ago that fire started being excluded here. Yeah, and so we believe that that was all at one time prairie, um, and now with fire exclusion has become a Ponderosa dry forest, and uh, Douglas fir is also moving in and uh, encroaching on the grassland. Hmm. Have you guys been seeing much mortality in any of that Douglas fir as it's been moving into these drier sites? Uh, It's actually doing pretty well. Uh, there are, we have a uh, mistletoe up there. We have, uh, you know, pine and graver beetle. There's uh, a couple root rot packets or pockets up there, but the, uh, the dug fur is actually doing really well for now. We expect if we have continued drought, like we're having 20 years in the future, they might not be doing as well, but we'll see. Yeah. So Martha, do you want to talk to us a little bit? You said conservation broadly is your goal. Can, can you explain maybe some more s- specifics of, you know, what, what the focus of your management efforts have been? Like, why did you originally start to take an active role in managing your forest? Well, I, I, I think fire has, and the, and the imminent concerns of, of me- mega fire and, and fire up the road that we've had certainly started to get our attention And uh, we are on, and the work that Tyler and Adam is doing is post uh, preparation for being much more fire resilient and and, in a habitat too. I mean, we're very active birders and we love the wildlife. We love the hiking and the recreation. It's it's a dominant feature for us is to be enjoying our, our, our forest every day. So that is a, a, a value set that's really important to us. Um, but about uh, 2004, we took 90 truckloads off where the, pond, where, the, where the dug fur was because it was frighteningly dense. And um, it was a new piece of ownership for us. And we started worrying about what would happen if it all burned up. Um, and what, what our responsibilities at a, at a community level would be if it all burned up, because we do have neighbors as well. So, so conservation comes from, from many different angles. It's, it's about uh, good, healthy land and good, healthy um, forest. And um, having a, a, we do have wolves, cougar, coyote, fox, you know, we're, we're down to the bobcats and, and all the other critters, lots of deer and elk. That's, those are very exciting and important. And, and having this forest healthy for them as well is, is something that we factor in. Um, our, our goal is a 50-year a plan that the forest is healthy for the next 50 years. And each incursion doesn't, um, uh, it will, will be done with that intention to keep kind of a 50-year plan going. So it's long-term. Do we do we have to take revenue off the land? It would uh, we will if it's necessary, but it is not the number one driving force for us. And I know that's a really important element of many family forests, so I, I value that a lot. It's it's a different it's a lower value uh, concern for us or interest. It's really about the keeping a um, a climate resilient place 
that can can be a, a test, of, you know, a test of time for for habitat and people and and uh, a good you know a good health to the to the community. Yeah, it's really it's a it's a shared legacy, right? Something that you can you can see continuing on to the future that that benefits both you and your your surrounding areas. That's yeah, awesome. yeah, it's a great way to put it. Thank you. Yeah, and I'd say too that you're you're definitely not alone in um, you know revenue not being your your number one priority. We actually know that for a lot of landowners, that's exactly how you describe it. They may take some revenue off the land. They may harvest some timber. Uh, if it coincides with their goals, but a lot of times it's exactly what you described: long-term health, resilience, legacy, enjoying the forest, enjoying the habitat, um, which I think is really awesome. It's one of the reasons that we really love working with forest owners. One of the things that that and I kind of mentioned early on that Adam and Tyler have have pushed us in a very very positive and proactive way is to be thinking about the ecosystem ecotone between our our um, true prairie and the ponderosa pine um, forest. And there's been this, it's an elevation change of, oh, I don't know what, 800 feet, something like that. Uh, that was a, that we, we think, and they have proposed that it was probably more prairie than it was forest. And, and when we think about the climate, climate impacts of, of these landscapes, there is a high probability from what we read and what these guys are researching is that prairies are going to be a very important climate mitigation. Um, and, you know, if a fire comes through, what burns above it is one thing, but we could have big, deep, healthy soils with a traditional prairie as well. So, so that's something we're experimenting with and everything that they're doing, we put in a, in an experimental model. We just say, we're, we're testing new ideas, some old ideas. We're trying, we're trying to see what we can learn and, and, um, and, and, you know, take in as many gurus that we can to learn more. And we've had great partners, Department of Natural Resources and, and uh, Ken Bevis, one of your, one of your, uh, your guests was, has been um, on, on site and leading us on a couple of the conversations we've had around wildlife trees and wildlife piles. And so we've, we've found some wonderful people have showed up to help. One of the things I'd like to talk to you about Martha is you had mentioned that you, so you've owned this property for 30, 35 years. Um, but it wasn't until I think you said early two thousands that you had done your first harvest. Is that correct? Uh, we we had done some earlier and done done the work around just forest health, you know, fire wise for shorthand uh, as as early as the late eighties, I think. Oh wow! So we've had we've done we've done a variety over over time. Um, I'm cu- curious, you know, for for landowners maybe that are are interested in. Um, taking an active management approach, but they don't really know where to get started. Can you talk a little bit about what that process looked like for you in terms of trying to find somebody, trying to find the information that you felt, you know, uh, gave you the best tools you needed? Um, Can you kind of lay out that process maybe for somebody who's thinking about trying to take an active management role on their forest? Sure. That's digging way deep in the memory. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I think it started with this forest looks like it needs some help help and 
Uh, I had met Phil through some community activities around growth management uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And he was on his way to being a consultant at that time. Uh, So we retained him then. And he's been our consultant ever since. So uh, I, I would... I would strongly say for us having a, a professional who who knew the ropes, uh, and we were weekenders at that time, so it was it was harder to be fully attentive, um, and with little little kids as well. So I, I think for us a really uh, worthwhile step was to to find a partner and a consultant who could guide us and work with us and. And, and we both we both grew through the process. And I would just say I, I really started with uh, it was very hard to think about taking down as many trees as we needed to do. And um, I would, you know, I sort of joke that I was the tree hugger and and, you know, didn't want to didn't want to part with any one of them, but would. And uh, over time, I I really saw the. Um, the importance of what Phil's advice and, and knowledge was, and and we conferred a lot. It was a it's been a very good good relationship that way. So that was number one, and it also allowed for for the plans the to have a forest practice plan for our for our property, which is something that does is required, and one can do it independently. Um, as you all know, you can write your own personal plan or have a professional do it. It was for us. It was worthwhile to have a professional. And as time went on, I think our interest just got deeper and deeper in doing more around uh, true forest health, not just, uh, we weren't looking to be a, a commercial forest in the long run. Um, we weren't looking to, to only be a stand of trees for, for lumber, um, as important as having lumber is. We we know, but um, so I, I think those for for me it was it was a stepwise. It didn't all happen at once. We didn't buy in all at once in doing it. Um, and and the evolution to coming to having um, Adam and Tyler doing the work they're doing has only connected us even more deeply to how how cool these forests are and and what a pleasure it is to to be working in them. And now we're, we're, we're all here every day. So uh, it, it, it took time. And, and I think, you know, everyone can, it isn't something that has to happen rapidly. One of the, one of the, the other things that we're, we're moving toward is prescribed fire. And we hope to be doing prescribed fire this year. So that's a, that's a long way from hugging every tree. <laughs> that's great. Um, but if, and I wanted, I was going to ask about prescribed fire and I want to talk about that, but I also want to dig at something you said about, well, kind of about hugging trees and, and not, you know, not really wanting to cut them down. You know, it's something I totally empathize with and understand. And I just want to dig into that a little bit. And what was it like, you know, create or developing your first timber harvest? And what did Phil say to, to comfort you and encourage you to, to go through with something like that. Cause that can be a big leap. And then seeing, you know, those stumps on the ground afterwards can probably be kind of tough too. Uh, so just kind of curious what that, 
with that perspective. Well, well, one of the great things that's changed is the stumps on the ground are now much higher off the ground because we're doing a great deal of work to create habitat trees, wildlife trees. So, so it's a very different look. It's refreshing to have a healthy looking forest. And, and I would say we in the Northwest, I don't know if it's true anywhere else, but we in the Northwest for the last 120 years have, have started to assume our forests are extremely dense. And that's, um, that's a real stressor these days on, on our forests. And, and I would think it's a stressor for any landowner worrying about um, major fires coming through. So it, it, taking, taking in um, what the landscape looks like after doing some of the, the forest work we've done, we have more wildflowers, we have uh, more birds, we have more cavity making uh, critters in, in our land, on the landscape. And um, it just feels, it feels beautiful and healthy and, and vibrant. So I think that's one of the things I wouldn't have expected. And, and we know what a clear cut looks like, it's far from that. It's, it's really stunningly beautiful. When it's first cut, it looks pretty raw, but it was a remarkable recovery. And we are on dry side. This is this is a place that things move grow slowly. But the the underbrush and and Adam and Tyler did a whole plant survey last year as part of the work, so they could speak to what they saw after um, after our projects, including mastication. So they should, they should speak about that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm sure your forest would thank you for that, uh, if it could. I mean, it sounds like you basically saw forest resilience in work, is what it sounds like to me. You know, it came back after you, after you uh, gave it what it needed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when we, uh, when we started this project, it was last April, and they had just done a big treatment where they removed a bunch of trees. They masticated lower limbs and logs, and when we got up there, it was like, whoa, because <laughs> the whole, there's nothing on the ground. There's just masticated wood everywhere. And we were kind of skeptical about it. And then uh, two months later, it was just blooming. We found five species of orchids on one hillside and it was, it bounced back really fast. Yeah. I remember when I was actually visiting Martha um, prior to this interview we were walking through her forest and as we're walking this herd of mule deer just walked through right past us not even bothered by us kind of looked at us and went eh they're they're not a risk and kept moving on as they were grazing uh, along the um the the bitter brush up the hillside that was totally taking off as a result of the thinning uh, in the area it was really cool to see yeah, they were probably okay with you because they're used to seeing us riding around on <laughs> <up> the gator. <laughs> I see them every day. So maybe, and maybe Tyler and Adam can answer this. Uh, Martha, you, you're going to have a little bit of the perspective of this question having owned and been on the property prior to. But one of the things we love to talk about, especially when it comes to wildlife, is the, the wildlife communities that respond to a current state of structure. And so I'm curious, what was one of the first things, maybe for example, we'll say, what was the first bird species you saw respond to your property that you had not seen prior to any of the active management taking place on it? Is there anything in particular you can, you can think of maybe that is Woodpecker. new to your property? Woodpeckers and sapsuckers, I think. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. 
Um, during that treatment, they created about 400 wildlife trees um, and also retained a lot of the, the historic snags that, that were there. So there's definitely a lot more habitat for, for cavity building, cavity nesting birds. And yeah. you guys have been doing some monitoring of that, correct? Yeah. Yeah, we've been uh, taking mapping and taking in, into account all of the snags that are up there. So, so talk look. to us a little bit about that process. What does that look like? What has your monitoring been doing and what have you guys been finding? Um, so we, I mean, so we did a lot of permanent plots, just fixed radius permanent plots to look at stocking and, and average size and age of the trees. Um, but then we also went through the whole, it was a 114 acre section to begin with. And then we did another 70 acre section and we counted every snag. Um, we just walked the whole forest, mapped them, measured them, uh, recorded wildlife usage, and uh, hopefully we can use that to look at them in the future. Yeah, it'll be interesting to have another team do this in the future after prescribed fire and see what kind of recruitment they get of new snags, new wildlife trees, and also if any, like how many were lost because of the fire. It'll be an interesting comparison. So we got over 600 snags and we, we measured them, we mapped them, and we recorded uh, insect and, and wildlife usage on them. And some of them are really old, some of them are brand new, uh, different heights, widths. So hopefully long-term we can kind of figure out what snags are best, what species work best, and how long it takes for woodpeckers and things to move into those newly created snags. Mm -hmm. One of the intentions is that this isn't just a one-off uh, visit through the forest, but but there will be an opportunity for others to come. We'll, we'll do this repeatedly over time. You know, five years from now, we can do the same study of the wildlife trees and the wildlife habitat uh, piles and 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 have have data collection over time. I'm curious when you were first learning about your forest and what you know about it now, what do you think your definition of what constitutes a healthy forest has changed? Well, I think naively, I never really thought about the soil health of a forest. And I think now I really uh, intend for us to be conscious of from soil to treetop health of the forest and, and that it's a whole, a whole ecosystem forest health as opposed to trees only. I think my, I was probably naively in the, the trees are the forest <laughs> before this project before, and especially working with Adam and Tyler. Have you done any uh, soil monitoring or anything like that to determine your soil characteristics? Not yet, but we hope that the, the mastication is, is a little bit rejuvenating. Yeah. I, you know, I was having a really wonderful conversation today with a, a researcher, researcher named Terry Jane, who I hope to have on this podcast one day. Um, and we were talking about variation in forest types and how they uh, are driven largely by soil properties. Um, and, and so we like, we, we can see on a hillside, there'll be, uh, you know, your, your topography is roughly the same. Your elevation is roughly the same. It's generally a south-facing or north-facing slope. There's not 
any major fundamental changes to it. Um, you're within a similar climactic gradient, but you can walk 200 feet apart from each other. And in one section, you can be in a Douglas fir ponderosa pine stand. And in another section, you can be in a, a cedar, grand fir, uh, white pine mixture. And the one of the key differences between these two sites was uh, primarily ash cap soils. That these soils had this layer of um, uh, ash, largely as a deposit of many of the volcanic eruptions we'd had on the property. And from that situation, what, what happens is ash is actually able to hold on to water slightly better. Uh, and it additionally adds depth to the soil. And so you have more area that you can hold water, which in turn just leads to these highly productive sites on the forest. Uh, and it was really cool to hear that conversation with her and just to, to hear how soil can r strongly drive the, the health of a stand. Um, and and I, I'm curious, do you guys, is there like a site on your property where you can walk 100 feet, 200 feet and can be in a completely different forest type? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, on those, on like the South facing slopes here, you know, you can go from, uh, a pretty nice old, uh, Ponderosa forest and then a hundred feet away, there won't be any trees and it'll just be prairie. It's just grass and camas and, you know, paintbrush and, you know, a lot, ton of other wildflowers and yeah, the soils do seem different. I have a feeling those are probably a little more shallow. It is, it is an original prairie. The Swak Prairie uh, is one of those Los Prairies that did come from volcanic action and also obviously erosion. But um, so, the, so, And it's a very clay soil. There's a lot of gumbo. Uh, South-facing slopes seem to be rockier. Yeah. And, um, and the forest hasn't been, uh, it wasn't farmed or, or manipulated in those ways. It was just Cattle probably ran on it a lot, and and then the selective cutting. You guys have been doing tree monitoring. Can you put some numbers behind what the forest density looked like before the harvest and after the harvest? Yeah, so um, what numbers we have are from Phil for the previous uh, densities. Um, but we do know that in certain areas it was between 200 to 250 plus trees per acre. Um, and now in those areas, we're down to about 60, 50 to 60 trees per acre. Wow. Yeah, it's a big difference. Mm -hmm. You mentioned prescribed fire a while back. Is that, um, you know, are you going to be using that primarily as a prairie restoration tool? Or are you going to be using that in your forest as well? What's the... What's the idea there? So the whole property is is in the burn plan, but it'll primarily be a forest forest focus. With um, the transition between prairie and forest, will be part of it. It's it's become a how would you describe it? It's become a ponderosa nursery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. And honestly, well, the, you know, I'm in Southwest Washington. They don't do too much burning here, besides in some of the sort of oak savanna historical oak. Mm -hmm communities uh which are unfortunately few and far between these days but um i am kind of fascinated by the idea that you'll be doing prescribed fire we've discussed with other guests you know how difficult that can be you know even on 
lands with a lot more resources like federal lands or state lands. Um, and so as a private landowner to be doing prescribed fire, it's pretty daunting. Uh, pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, daunting, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, do you know, uh, you said next year you're going to be doing it. Do you know the size of the project or any? Oh, other we details? think it's, we hope it's 2022. We hope it's this fall. This oh, this fall. fall. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't hear that. Uh, 200 acres, basically. And we were we were tag, flagging uh, the the fire break line along the property line today, so we'll have a, a skid skid line between. So we're starting to prepare with the anticipation. You know, I think Sean, you've mentioned we've we've got a, a, a fair bit of attention on prescribed fire here with the Trex group. That's uh, Rosalind's done quite a bit, both on private and public land. Um, so, so there is some, there is some, uh, experience around. Have you done any sort of community engagement, um, with, with the local Cleelum city just to maybe, you know, use this as a teaching opportunity or even just kind of like getting the community aware that there is going to be a prescribed fire. So people aren't, I know that Roslyn's done a lot of that with their, their activities, both on the private and the, and the Roslyn, uh, urban forest. We are just in the process of making that plan to to reach out, but it's an important element. Yeah. You know, one of the words we love to throw around is this word stewardship. Um, and so I'm just curious from your perspective, what does stewardship mean to you and what does it mean to be a steward of the land as somebody who has, you know, lived on it for the, the amount of time you have? Well, it's a, it's a really big topic and an important one. And, and everybody... Um, I mean, stewardship can be simply just being a caretaker or stewardship can be much more active. And we're taking a very active role in, in managing the resources that we happen to own for the good of the future. And um, that includes, uh, you know, employing young talent like Tyler and Adam and, and bringing other people into the mix to to, to learn from them and exchange knowledge. We've had field days where, where we've shared what we're doing. So I see those as all elements of stewardship, not just um, holding tight to a place, but making it possible for others to uh, learn and benefit. And, and, and in the exchange, I hope we learn and benefit from, from the knowledge. And, and I feel like some of the places that that's happened has been around climate and uh, new practices in forest and the for and the the prescribed fire is all about stewardship. Um, that we are uh, hopefully our landscape will not be a contributor to the bigger problems when fire does come through by taking care of what we have. So those are all elements. And Tyler and Adam, I'm I'm curious. I want to ask you the same question as you know as students who are pretty new in this field and definitely weren't forestry people. You know, what has been your perception of stewardship been as you've both learned and worked under Martha, but just your time in the woods? Um, yeah, I mean, to me, like this is pretty new, you know, I mean, I grew up uh, exploring forests and everything. And I, I think, um, I think I was pretty naive about the whole thing before thinking like a, like a healthy forest was one that was kind of, 
untouched and that humans weren't really a part of. And I was, you know, very wrong about that because uh, humans have been a part of this landscape for thousands of years. And, you know, these forests sort of evolved and adapted with um, disturbance events driven by people. And so, you know, stewardship to me definitely now means a much more active role um, in taking care of, yeah, I mean, taking care of the forest and making sure there's habitat and you're, you know, not endangering your neighbors with a, a dog hair forest or anything like that. And yeah, I, I think an active role is definitely the, the best course of action. That's really well put. Um, I'm just curious, you know, for you guys, what's, what's the next step? What are you guys, uh, you know, either on the property or, or elsewhere? I'm also curious, so maybe this is a two-part question. What's going to happen with all that data you're collecting? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> uh, we're still working on that. Uh, so okay. the job's not done. Yeah. In terms of next, next steps, we are looking for new people to bring on because we have another 200 acre section that we want to inventory, but we're trying to kind of pass this along this opportunity. And, um, we, so I'm kind of compiling the data just as kind of a report for Martha. And then whatever we decide to do with that, we can talk about that later. We're also working on a manual for forest land owners so that, uh, we're developing a method of kind of a basic forest inventory. That's not too, overcomplicated so that people without a scientific background or a forestry background can conduct this in their own backyard. And it'll just kind of guide them to learn about their forest, how they can do their own inventory, and then how that can lead them into writing a management plan and steering them towards some resources and how they can get involved with actively managing their forest once they figure out what they have and the, the stocking conditions. Sean, we should probably try to hire them. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like the manual, really the manual and the data collection dissertation has to be finished first. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Right. Yeah. Have you had any neighbors come up to you in the process and ask questions about the work you're doing and maybe kind of get inspired to do any of that work themselves? There have been. Uh, we're on pretty qui pretty quiet back roads, so it isn't highly visible. Um, but yes, they have. And, 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 and other neighbors are starting to think about moving in a similar direction. And other, you know, and nearby neighbors are doing it on their own too through the DNR uh, uh, cost share program. So that's been a really important uh, partner to a number of the forest owners around here. That's super exciting, honestly. And, and I, I love that you incorporated that kind of work, that sort of outreach uh, or, or demonstration uh, education into your definition of stewardship. Because uh, it's, you know, it's easy to be an island. Yeah. <laughs> never, you know, and that's fine mm -hmm. too. You can't expect everybody to do that. But I think that's... Um, it's really great. And it's great that it's having an impact on the community. You know, as you've, especially because you were just referencing cost share, is there, actually, let me phrase this as a question. What have been some of the challenges that you've faced as a landowner that you think still exist and you would like 
you know, the community or maybe the forestry community or those listening to try um, to change if, if there's something we could, um, you know, try to work towards? Well, I would say that the, the co- more cost share, first of all, and then cost share for uh, a deeper uh, resource of what is a healthy forest. In other words, related to wildlife habitat piles and wildlife trees and uh, you know, really that soil to treetop health as opposed to just the way the cost share program is set up right now. It could be expanded and I think it would engender more interest by landowners. And so I guess, you know, one of the things we love to talk to landowners about and there, there might be a right or wrong, there might not be a right or wrong answer for this. Um, but I'm curious, you know, as you are managing your land, have you guys done any sort of succession planning for your forest? And you've talked about your kids and how they enjoy that property. Have you engaged with them in the management of this forest? Yeah, yeah, they're they're very tuned into it. Absolutely. Do you guys do anything like uh, conservation easements or, or any sort of uh, work with land grant? Or I'm um, sorry, not land grants, but um, land trusts. Uh, in my in my volunteer world, I spend a great deal of time, and and both my husband Jerry Tone and I spend a lot of time with the Trust for Public Land and the land conservation movement. So we're very active in in that whole arena. And currently, our property is not in an easement. So I'm wondering if there's like a central place where people can follow. I think you got a really good picture of what you're doing. I think it's really awesome. I um, mostly just want to be able to stay tuned uh, to some degree. It sounds like you guys are really generating a lot. And it sounds like at some point, you know, there's going to be manuals and, and other works and um, what the farm is doing. Also, do you have a name for the farm? Because I don't know if I've heard that. Uh, it's just it's just family property right now. So but okay. we are calling it the Swat Prairie Experimental. Just as a placeholder for the things that we're doing in the forest, but it doesn't have any uh, branding at this point. <laughs> sure. I like that. You guys should definitely make a, an Instagram and start yeah. posting your stories along. Yeah. It's, it's not a bad idea, actually. I would love to keep it up. And honestly, it sounds like one of the cool things we could do with this conversation is have you guys back on in another year uh, yeah. And talk to you about what's changed, you know, and, and what new things have you done? I definitely, what was the result of that prescribed fire, how that went, what some of the changes you see from that. I'm very excited to see. Yeah, how come, take a, come, yeah. come take a, a walk about and, and see it. We'll, we'll do some other field days coming up. So I'll drop you a note. Better yet, we could just do a podcast in the field. Yeah. <laughs> while while first... it's, the prescribed fire is happening, some of the things <laughs> that I actually another another element is that the Adam and Tyler put up put up cameras at various points around the wildlife piles and and just seeing what's happening out there, and caught a a, a night image of a flying squirrel. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Ken Bevis had this great idea for how we could sift through hundreds of thousands of pictures over a couple months. <laughs> but yeah, we got a lot of really cool stuff on the on the cameras. How much activity have you been, you guys been seeing on those wildlife piles? Uh, quite a bit. Yeah. A lot of uh, we we put up four cameras or sorry, forty cameras uh, for a m- one month, two months, one month, one month, uh, just on. A variety, like 30 piles. And I mean, we had hundreds of thousands of pictures. A lot of them were kind of yeah. misfires, but we had like dozens of species and we were trying to do a occupancy study on it, uh, which is still kind of in the works. The 
the biostatistics on that are still going on. But yeah, they, they definitely get a lot of use by a lot of different uh, types of animals. Yeah. Well, perfect. So thank you very much, uh, Martha, Tyler, and Adam for joining us today on the Forest Overstory podcast. We really look forward to uh, hearing the rest of your guys' story as you continue onwards and, and you know, you're monitoring data and your prescribed fire. Uh, and yeah, we just want to say thank you and thank you to all of our listeners today uh, for joining us on the Forest Overstory. Have a nice day.